Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The House returns to Washington on Wednesday. The Friday after that, this Friday, the first of two deadlines for avoiding a partial government shutdown. This, as the ranks of House leadership seem to be melting away, we get an update from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Could they have devised a shorter deadline for themselves in coming back? (laughs) A lot of people are asking that very question, wondering why they took off for close to two weeks and then left themselves with only basically 72 hours to reach this agreement on yet another avoiding yet another partial government shutdown. And while there has been some activity behind the scenes and the appropriators have been doing things, uh, really people were just kind of scratching their heads at why this scheduling occurred this way because they've really put themselves up against it once again. And a lot of people, both on the Republican and on the Democratic side, are just getting tired of these continuing resolutions. And now the fact that we're uh, headed into March and soon we'll actually be heading up right before the uh, State of the Union address by the president, which is actually on March 7th, uh, it's just amazing that we're going to be talking about the next fiscal year while we still haven't wrapped up the current fiscal year. And agencies, I think, are starting to speak up a little bit more about the fact that continuing resolutions are not ideal for the planning and execution of vital programs that they're charged with doing. Right. And one of the big ones that we heard from uh, in this past week was the Pentagon, which sometimes doesn't really want to weigh in on a lot of these things. But it was pretty clear that they do not want yet another round of continuing resolutions that they just feel that it just cuts into any kind of planning that uh, military planners can do. One of the comments came from uh, the Pentagon spokeswoman, Sabrina Singh, who says that they just can't keep operating this way. No amount of money can buy back the time we lose when we are forced to operate under continuing resolutions. If you add up the total time spent under a CR going back to 2011, we've spent nearly five years under CRs. That puts our national security at risk and prevents the department from modernizing. And related to that, military construction funding ends on March 1st, and then the funding for the rest of the Pentagon expires on March 8th. So a lot of defense planners really upset, frankly, about this, that they are once again trying to move the proverbial aircraft carrier, almost literally in this case, uh, once again to try to accommodate the fact that the Congress just can't reach its deadlines. Yeah, the military construction is a big issue because of the just deteriorating condition of so many facilities and the backlog keeps growing and growing, I guess. Right. I mean, that's one of the areas that uh, Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, for example, who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, has worked really hard on the fact that uh, he hears all the time about these deteriorating military facilities for the military men and women. And let's face it, when you're trying to recruit people into the various armed services and then you can't even provide decent housing for them when they're under all these challenges and having to move from station to station. It's really a big concern for a lot of people uh, in the military and among members of Congress. And speaking of the military, there is the whole Ukraine situation, which is really getting drawn out, dragged out here. 
what are the prospects? People are really scratching their heads at the United States in some ways. Right. This is a situation where people predicted a year ago that there would be some waning support for Ukraine, but I don't think that a lot of people thought it would come to this head at this point. And we really saw this in the past week, all these forces coming together in in the fact that uh, you had the Munich Security Conference where the lawmakers from the United States were getting an earful from their European colleagues saying, what are you actually going to do? You actually even had European leaders telling them that they were concerned about what kind of maneuvers that were going to happen in the U.S. House. That's how closely it's being followed overseas. And right now, it does appear that House Speaker Mike Johnson is in a bit of a quandary, as he often is, uh, because of that incredibly tight margin of error that he has. He's got a hardcore group of people that do not want any aid to Ukraine and, in fact, have threatened to kick him out of the speakership if he brings up something on the floor. And then you have a much larger number of people who would like to actually approve aid for Ukraine. And then in the middle of all this, uh, there's actually a new proposal within the House from uh, a bipartisan proposal that would scale back the amount of aid to Ukraine, but make it primarily just military and then a variety of other things. But it would be a smaller package than the $95 billion package that's already been passed by the Senate. And then, of course, you have a lot of proponents of that package who say, look, the House should just take this up. So right now, it's a real tough situation. It'll be interesting to see how Mike Johnson, who has kept the door slightly open to approving Ukraine aid, but he clearly would have to have a lot of support from Democrats in the House. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And the back to the office tug of war back and forth keeps going on. Now the IRS is the latest agency to try to get at least management back. I think the they want them three out of the five days. And this is a concern of mostly Republicans also. Right. And it's, again, like you said, this tug of war, they're trying to get more and more of these people back. Now, of course, as you alluded to, this is only a limited number of Treasury Department and IRS officials basically in management. But it's, again, to try to at least show an example that here are some of the people that are going back, and for the rest of the people, you need to look at this example. Uh, as you said, they're going to be required essentially to be back half of the time uh, during any month. But this does not start until May 5th, so actually after the latest uh, tax season. Um, but they really want to get a lot of these people back into these offices. And in this in this case, this will affect a lot of people here in the Washington area, uh, including people that have telework agreements, uh, as well as those who are working at IRS headquarters or in New Carrollton at the federal building. Um, but it's, again, it's this big push. A lot of Republican lawmakers, as you mentioned, are still trying to get more and more people back into the offices. And of course, not just at Treasury and IRS, but uh, throughout the government to various agencies. And we were talking about Speaker Johnson and whether he would retain his seat as speaker. The last one, Kevin McCarthy, was not only booted out of the speaker's job, he left Congress right then and there. Right. And this is happening with a lot of House committee members. And you've been tracking the shrinking leadership going on there. Right. It's really interesting what's happened. I mean, since Kevin McCarthy has left Congress, dozens of other Republicans, as well as Democrats, have decided they've had enough. And what's interesting about that is many of the Republicans that are leaving are chairman of major House committees. They include Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which, as you know, covers a very, very broad breadth of possible topics for investigations and hearings. And then you also had Mark Green, the chair of the 
the Homeland Security Committee announcing he's leaving right after, frankly, the vote related to the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. And then at the top, you have House Speaker Mike Johnson, who is very much in a precarious position, I think it's fair to say. As members of Congress were leaving for their break, uh, we spoke to a lot of them as they were heading out of the Capitol. And it's clear that some of them are having buyer's remorse about kicking out Kevin McCarthy, because for whatever problems that the GOP conference had, he was able, as one lawmaker said, to hold together the conference, even with all these differences. Whereas once he left, as this lawmaker said, he essentially allowed it to have a crowbar to wide open, rip open all of these differences within the Republican conference. And we're going to see more of that this week because you still have the House Freedom Caucus who just says, we're not really all that concerned about a government shutdown. And if it shuts down, hey, no big deal. And other parts of the conference who say this is a huge political liability for us. What we're hearing is that a lot of people just don't think House Speaker Mike Johnson is leading the Republicans and is more kind of a follower in some respects, allowing them to air their grievances. But as much as they moan and groan about the fact that they don't want to be pulled one way or the other, they do need some kind of leadership. Yes, yeah, sounds like he's hanging on by his fingernails on the back of a runaway jalopy, I guess, is more than, <laughs> it more than leading anything, as they say. Oh, my Yorkus. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much, as always. You, you bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.